Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we are officially starting our study in 1 Corinthians tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible or New Testament, uh, look to your neighbor and they'll share with you. And I hope you'll take some detailed notes. We're going to be uh, spending some time in 1 Corinthians, at least a minimum of 15 weeks, maybe as much as 30 weeks. We'll just have to see. Uh, there's a lot of topics here, but I'm not going to pause on every one of them. We'll probably come back to some of them. But uh, I pray that we'll grow through this, this series to, uh, during these next several weeks. And there's some things we'd consider controversial topics that I don't believe are controversial. It's just they're controversial because people don't believe what the Bible says. Amen, you know? And so that, that's why they're called controversial. But if you believe what the Bible says, then you're correct. Amen? And uh, we're not here about being politically correct. We're about being biblically correct. Amen? And if you believe the Bible, you're going to be biblically correct. If you don't believe the Bible, you're, you're biblically incorrect. Amen? And so we we'll want to help that tonight. And, uh, you know, the, the Bible's going to help us define things like what's carnal and what's spiritual. Uh, are you living on the milk or are you living on the meat? And, uh, you know, are you using your gifts right? And tonight, uh, Paul does such a masterful way of setting the groundwork on things. And you know that works. You've got to establish the groundwork. You've got to get, you have to set the pathway so you understand it. And I think he'll do that tonight as we study this. And so I pray that God would use the study tonight to help us. Chapter 1, 1 Corinthians. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to verse 4. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that you may be blameless in the end, and that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. And I just want to pause there and say amen to that. Amen. God is faithful, by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ. Our Lord. I'll call your attention tonight to a phrase buried right there in verse 5. That's the title of our message this evening. And Paul said that he was thankful that the working of the grace of God in the lives of believers that he rubbed shoulders with, that he saw come to Christ, he said that in everything ye are enriched by him. What a great thought. We are enriched by him. We have everything we need in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? We are enriched by him. What an encouraging thought. But with those riches come responsibilities. And with those riches, there must be righteous living. And with those riches, it calls upon us to have repentance when we're wrong. And so tonight as we just kind of start our study in 1 Corinthians. I, I pray that this evening God would just impress on our hearts how good you and I have it. We are enriched by him too. We're enriched by many things God has given us. And we want to see that tonight, the subject of being enriched by him. Father, bless your word tonight. Deliver us from carnality. Lead us into spirituality. Lord, put your finger and shine the light where there's contentions and schisms and divisions and envies and jealousies. 
Father, I pray tonight that you would deliver us, God, from perhaps the very same things that Paul mentions here in 1 Corinthians. I pray that you change us. God, I pray you'd waken us. I pray even right now that our hearts would be good soil that's been tilled, that's been cultivated, where the fallow ground has been broken up. And I pray for good, good soil upon which the precious seed of your word will fall upon. Thank you, it's precious seed. Thank you, it's incorruptible seed. Thank you, it's seed that will never perish. Thank you for seed that when it finds its place, it will take root, root downwards and bear fruit upwards. And we're praying tonight that you do a mighty work in our hearts, a supernatural work. God, I pray you change us and grow us. I pray that, Lord, we see things that will happen in our lives because we had faith in your word and obeyed it. Well, thank you tonight for what you'll do. If someone's here tonight and not saved, perhaps they've gone through the motions and pretenses, that tonight they'd recognize they need to get saved. They must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Thank you for tonight and what you'll do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps you're familiar with the term, the wealth index. If not, I hope that you will. The wealth index is a composite measure of a household's economic living standard. And what they do there, they calculate uh, kind, of the, kind of where people are at or countries are at on this wealth index based upon their household ownership of things, you know, very simple things like washing machines and uh, bicycles for the kids and televisions and, um, you know, what kind of materials were used for the construction of your home, things we in America take for granted, and uh, water access and sanitation needs and access to sewage and all those type of things. And this wealth index basically determines the characteristics of the healthiness of an individual, both physically and mentally, and as well as, as, as if you would, in terms of just their, their, their ability to afford things. And, uh, you know, so they use this to determine, you know, are we in a rich society, poor society, of course. And, you know, I say this all the time. I say, until you go outside of America and visit some countries that are not well-to-do, you don't really realize how well you have it. Even a person that is in the poorest of situations, perhaps in this world, uh, in this United States of America, they're still much better off than people in many, many other places there. I've been in places in the world where basically they've squeezed five or six families in basically a 10 by 10 room. And if you want to visualize 10 by 10 room, uh, just come to our church offices and our church staff. Our staff guys uh, just persevere in little offices that are about 10 by 8. And we're, we're praying about just trying to enlarge some things so they have a little bit more space there. But, you know, if you, if you can imagine putting five or six families in a 10 by 10, there's not a lot of space there. There's no running water. There's there's no sewage, and what water they do have, they have to go to the central location of that particular neighborhood where there's just basically a, a, a well or something similar to a well. They have to pump the water out, and for sewage, basically everything's underneath their house. I mean, that's what it is, and very, very poor, dilapidated conditions there, and you would not consider that very, very wealthy. In fact, you consider that the poorest of poor, but you know, tonight I want to ask the question, do you consider yourself rich or wealthy? And of course, if you're looking based upon car ownership or neighborhood status where somebody lives, that all of a sudden we, we have these different qualifiers there. Uh, Charles Schwab, last year around April 15th in 2019, came out with the results of an assessment or study of what constitutes being healthy. Now, don't, don't take these numbers and say you're not wealthy or whatever there, but this is just kind of what they did based on metrics and numbers. They said the national average for wealth is a net worth of 2.4 million. Net worth means all your assets minus your liabilities. 
Nationwide, they said the, that an annual of income of $115,000 makes you well off or wealthy. In the Bay Area, you basically double all those numbers. They said the Bay Area, you're not wealthy unless you have $4.2 million in net net assets. And in the Bay Area, they said unless you have $300,000 of gross income, you're not well off. Now, don't get discouraged or anything like that. And by the way, if you're in that category, I hope you're a tither. Okay, I hope you're that you're a tither there, okay? But don't be discouraged if those numbers are not anywhere near where you're at. I'm just saying tonight, we, we have to be very careful that we're not measuring, measuring our, our wealth, per se, uh, based on those numbers. I'm going to tell you tonight, you're, you're, you're very well off. You're wealthy in Jesus Christ. Amen. You're very wealthy in Jesus Christ. And, you know, if you, can, if you can go to bed at night, not worry about your creditors and bills are being paid. And by the way, if you've got good health and you can go to work tomorrow morning, you ought to thank God for that. You're wealthy, amen? And if you can go out to buy, go get an In-N-Out burger once a month, I think you're pretty wealthy, amen? And uh, if you can come here tonight and uh, just be thankful that you can buy a tank of gas every week or every two weeks, depending on what kind of car you drive, you're wealthy. You're, you're well off. Thank God for that. But tonight, we're, we're looking at a, a thought the Apostle Paul gave about the church at Corinth. He said, you are enriched by him. Now, just by way of background, we talked about this, this last uh, two weeks here. I spent two weeks talking about Paul's entry into the church at Corinth. And the title of that was Confronting Corinth, because that's what really this is about, Confronting Corinth. And Corinth was the, if you would, the cosmopolitan center of the world. Uh, Paul was previous to going to Corinth. He was at Athens, which was considered the intellectual center of the world, where the philosophers and wise men of the world supposedly congregated. And Corinth was a place of great wealth. It was a place of commerce. In fact, Corinth has very easy access, both walking into there as well as ports of entry. They had two different ports of entry there. It was a major tourist spot. It was classified as the vanity center of the world, and a person who lived like a Corinthian was called, if you called a person a Corinthian, it was kind of an insult or kind of a, just a description of their worldly lifestyle there. And uh, it, was, it was known for its availability of, uh, and flaunting of sinful indulgences and corruption. But of all places, which perhaps today we would consider and call a very difficult spot, God laid on the heart of the Apostle Paul to plant a church there, amen? And he went there to confront that place. And uh, he spent 18 months there. And I want you to listen to care for the background so you understand why this letter was written. Paul spent 18 months there at Corinth. The longest, until he went to Ephesus, it was the longest place he stayed at. God led him from that place to Ephesus. We read about that in chapter 18 of Acts. And then we go to chapter 19. And uh, probably in our studies there, we'll, go, we'll visit that in a little bit here. And while he was there at Ephesus, the Bible tells us that Paul spent three years at the city of Ephesus. Great things happen down at Ephesus. Let me just say this today. The longer you stay where you're at, the greater the works that God will do. you got to stay there. you got to stay planted. That's why Paul told Timothy, I want you to stay at Ephesus. But he stayed there. And by the way, he told Titus, I want you to stay at the island of Crete because there, there are elders that he ordained there. But while he was there, he received a report. I believe the report came from the household of Chloe because we read about that in chapter 1. And accompanying them, I believe, with them was several other people, one of which was a man by the name of Sosthenes. And a report was given to the Apostle Paul of a church that when he left it, he left it in good shape. He left it thriving. He left it hot. He left it on fire. The gospel was being preached. Souls were being saved. Baptisms were happening. They were fighting false doctrine. They were correcting all the wrong, on the right doctrines. But Paul had not been there, been gone for maybe two years, and things were crumbling. 
Things were in trouble there. And I, I went over a list of these things last time. I'm not going to do it tonight. But things were coming apart. And I want to say this tonight. As we look at our study, Paul is laying the groundwork for all the spiritual correction he's going to give at Corinth. Every single problem that a church runs into, you're going to find that in the book of Corinthians. And perhaps things, is going to, uh, it's going to probably open up some things for us to see some things in our church that we're going to need correcting, and we're going to have to have a humble heart and a teachable spirit and asking God to work through us. When the church of Corinth was founded, listen to this, it became a church in the world, and that's what God wants. He wants churches in the world. He wants churches to be established. He wants churches to be in places where there's large populations of people. And I want to encourage you tonight, no matter how old you are or who you are, we should never lose that burden or pray, praying for that desire that God will fulfill the desire in our lifetime of churches being started and planted through our ministry. In just a couple of years after Paul left, instead of it being a church in the world, it had, it had morphed into a, a place where the world was in the church. When it was started, it was a church confronting its culture, but after a couple years, it morphed into a church corrupted by its culture. Now, we need to be careful. We need to be careful. We want to be certain that we are, do not lose our moorings and our bearings that we're a church in the world and not a church where the world is in the church. Amen. Or a place where we're confronting our culture, but we morph later on to where the culture is now has confronted and permeated us and corrupted us. We want to be very, very careful. And, you know, I want to remind you tonight, about 200 years ago, Charles Spurgeon said this, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. And that was spoken by Charles Spurgeon back in the 1800s when he pastored the great, the great, the great uh, tabernacle church there, in, in, in Metropolitan Church there in London, England. And so tonight... Let's look at this groundwork where Paul, in this greeting, is giving a greeting to the church at Corinth, and he talks about a church that has been enriched by him. He does not start this letter off in the first nine verses, jumping at them and attacking them and raping them apart. And let me just encourage us tonight that we might just be listen a little bit to what the Apostle Paul does and to have a little bit of grace in our hearts and realize probably the best tactic and strategy in working with people and dealing with people, especially people who've got, who perhaps have offended you or you've been hurt by, is to realize you don't just jump down their face the first 60 seconds you see them, but to come with a spirit of grace and mercy and realize that you can still be gracious and Christian uh, before you approach them with the thing that you need to confront them about. And Paul does that here because he reminds them of who they were in Jesus Christ, what God had done for them, why he was still thankful for them, and what we can learn in terms of confronting our situation. I want you to see three things about this church at Corinth and how it was enriched by the grace of God. Number one, I want you to see the church and its station. The church and its station. We want to see a local church tonight. Notice verses one and two. Paul makes reference in verse one about his credentials and his authority. He has to approach him on the understanding that he was not an apostle by his calling. He was an apostle by God's calling. You see, as we get to 2 Corinthians Paul's credentials were being questioned. He was being thrown under the truck. People were saying he really was an apostle of God. And so he had to verify and validate his credentials and reminding them that his calling was of God and his message was of God. He's reminding them that both he and Sosthenes are bringing this greeting. That's why I believe that Sosthenes is the one, one of the members who came to him and brought him the report of all the things going wrong with the church at Corinth. But notice verse 2. 
His emphasis now is on this church, the station of the church. He's writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth. He's writing to a church that has a central location. Now, we want to understand for just a moment tonight, this church and, and where it's locale and the people of this church. Because we want to make sure everybody has a firm understanding, a firm grasp of what we believe about ecclesiology or the doctrine of the local church. I want to make sure all of us understand that tonight. And if you understand what I'm going to say to this evening, I want you to give a hearty amen to that. If you don't believe what I understand it tonight, if you don't understand it, I pray that when I'm done talking about this for a few moments, you will understand it. If you're not in agreement, please come see me as soon as possible because we want to make sure everybody's on the same page. First of all, when we see in this opening address the church in a station... We're talking about the church in its position. The church in its position. The church of God which is at Corinth. Now, listen tonight. The Bible teaches and emphasizes local, independent, autonomous churches. Local, independent, autonomous churches. We are not denominational. We're not part of a hierarchy. Local, independent, autonomous churches. We'll say more about that in a moment, okay? Now, this is in contrast to the universal mystical church, okay? Now, listen to some things I'm going to say tonight. As a local church, we are a visible assembly. In other words, you see me, I see you, okay? You see me, I see you. We are local in our assembly. The word ecclesia, I'm going to repeat it again tonight. The word ecclesia was a modern day word that was used in their culture. And ecclesia referred to how they had assemblies in order in their towns or their hamlets in order to disseminate information. Today, we have social media. It's amazing how quickly you can get a message out to somebody through social media, e-blasts, all these other different venues. But in those days, they had to tell everybody, you'd show up. We're going to have a meeting on Friday Friday afternoon at 12 noon. All the city's invited to come. And then the mayor would come, or whoever the city leader would be. And that, that would be an assembly or an ecclesia. That would be an assembly. It was localized. It defined a location, a street, a place where everybody would meet. And then the mayor, whoever it was, they would make the announcement and tell everybody what's going on. Well, that word ecclesia meant that's a place where people met. They identified with it. It was a visible assembly. Now, we take it more specifically. Jesus Christ, our Lord, gave the word ecclesia to introduce to us the concept and the doctrine of the local church. He wanted us to understand that the church is something you see. The church is something you go to. The church is something you belong to. The church is composed of people. If we don't have buildings, the buildings don't make up the church. Now, if you read some Protestant literature, some Protestant literature, in fact, I just read this from one leading Southern Baptist author who's a very good Southern Baptist. He's retired now, but a very, very good expository preacher. He and many of those others, those, those Southern Baptist forefathers, they, they still refer to the church as the building. The church is not the building. Now, we, we, we call it a building in the sense of people being part of a building, but we're not, we're not talking about physical structure. Okay, the people, listen, if we don't have a building, we can still go outside and meet in the parking lot. That's the church, okay? The parking lot's not the church, but the people are the church, okay? So, now listen to this this evening, okay? We are a visible assembly of saved, baptized people who meet at a centralized location to worship God, okay, and serve. Now, does that mean, does that mean people who are... Um, watching by live stream that they're part of the local church. If physically they are unable to be there, and I'll use Sally if I can pick on you. If Fat Sally has had uh, health issues in the last several months, she's recovering, and thank God the Evans are here tonight, amen? You know, but Bob and Sally, if they can't be here, I can tell you they're probably one of our most faithful members. They will zone in on live stream. You say, how do you know? Because when live stream breaks or it's not working, I hear about it, amen? And so I know they're watching my live stream, okay? And so, but they're faithful to do that, but you, you know what Sally's heart is and Bob's heart is? I don't want to be watching live stream. I want to be with the body. 
I want to be the local body. That's what we're talking about today. Now, the universal idea is invis- that it's an invisible church and has no meeting place. Now, please help me tonight. How can you have a church that's invisible? That's like having an invisible husband or wife. Amen? It, or like having invisible money. Okay? It just, it's, it's a, it doesn't work. Okay? And so it's, you know, they talk about an invisible, maybe you want an invisible husband or wife. I don't know. Maybe some of you want that. Okay? I don't know. We're not going to go there tonight. All right? All right? But the universal idea is invisible and it has a specific meaning place. Now, we're a little bit more specific because we're talking about saved, baptized people. Okay? Uh, we're not talking, we're not talking about, by the way, the church is composed of saved, baptized people. Now, a local church has a local church pastor. Who's the pastor of the universal church? Somebody help me here. There is none. There is none, okay? You can't have a different, you, okay, this guy over here, this guy, that, that's not your pastor, okay? And then these guys who are on the internet all the time, they're getting all their, their, feet, their, their feet off the internet. Let me tell you tonight, you better decide tonight that the internet is not going to be your pastor because that is not a pastor, okay? And I'm going to throw some names out there. If you're watching Steve Anderson, don't let him be your pastor, you know what I'm talking about there tonight. Some of you are curious. I'm going to go look him up. Don't look him up, okay? <laughs> Listen, the local church is where we put our tithe and our offerings. Now, you know why people like the universal church? They have no place to send their tithe and offering. Now, if you're a universal church member, you need a place to send your tithes and offerings until you get to local church, send it to 2960 Merced Street, amen? That'll help you out there along the way, okay? I'm just trying to help you there tonight. Trying to be a blessing, okay? We're just saying tonight, we're talking about the position of this church at Corinth. Notice number two. What you notice verse two, the people of this local church. Now, the local church is not the assets. I, you know, I, 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 I rejoice, but then I shake. We have our annual business meetings, our victory reports. I'm so thankful for how meticulously Brother David Lau, during a very busy time of the year for him, pulls all the records and things together, and we've had several meetings leading into it, and he gives a report to the church, and it, the church does not understand, and even our previous treasures and that, the church doesn't understand the cumulative numbers of hours that our, our men put into this, this preparation, and, it's, and, and, they're, and they're laymen that do this. But I shudder when I look at numbers that where we were just thankful to have a, you know, just to get a, our first offering that, you know, you're talking about a church today that has a lot of assets. And I shudder with that because uh, I, I don't want to become a rich church that is really a poor church, if you know what I mean, okay? And so I want to understand tonight that our assets are not what makes up the church. It's the people. When people make up their mind to come to church, of the time, they make up their mind to come back because of the people, because of the preaching, not because of the assets. Listen, we had some of our greatest growth back there in that old auditorium. No heating, no air conditioning. Some of you might remember those summers. Man, it was hot in there during those summers, okay? And those cold, those winters, man, you think, it would, you think it's cold in here, you need to go back over there. I think sometimes if we're going to have revival, we need to just go back to the old auditorium, just watch what God's going to do over there, amen? That's some of our best growth in our church during these last several years back at that time. But I want you to know some things Paul says. Would you go to verse 2? Now, I'm laying the groundwork tonight. Please don't miss us this evening. He says, unto the church of God, now we've, we've established his position, the church of God, which is at Corinth. Notice how he describes the people of the church. To them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, notice this, that are called to be saints. Now he uses two words that mean the same thing, but he wants us to understand something. Because remember, this was, when he went there, this was a church confronting its culture. Number one, he uses the word sanctified. 
Now, let's get used to the word sanctified in our vocabulary. It's a good word. It's a Bible word. And the word sanctified that is used in the Greek word, I want you to write this down, is the word hagiazos. The word for saint is the word hagios. Both words have the same meaning. Both words are where we get our word holy from. All three of those words refer to being set apart for the purpose of holiness. It's more than just being set apart. It's being set apart for the purpose of holiness. Now, if you missed the message from Isaiah 6 about two or three weeks ago on holiness, you need to get that message to lay the groundwork on that because we just see, we see how the essence of holiness in that message, and then we see Isaiah's encounter with holiness, then we ended it talking about the expectation of holiness. And you need to listen to that so you can have an appreciation of this great attribute of God. But here he's talking about in verse 2 about the people of God as someone who's set apart for a holy purpose. Now, listen to that. I'm going to make a statement. God saved us out of sin not to keep living in sin. God saved us out of sin not to keep living in sin, okay? Now, listen to me tonight. When we follow with a new believer, we know it's important to give them assurance of salvation. But I want to emphasize tonight very strongly it is also important that we emphasize with them in, their, in the fall an understanding of what they are saved out of and what they're saved from, okay? Paul does that here in 1 Corinthians because some of those believers either got, they, they got back into what they were doing before and he has to address that very seriously, especially in, in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. And some of them really just, they just needed to realize they, they should not have been uh, commingling with, with the world, okay? Now, when we talk about sanctified and, and, and saints and emphasize the kind of life a believer is to be living after they're saved. Now, let me give you an example of that, okay? You and I are not to continue sinful behavior. Listen, if you lied, if you were a liar before you got saved, stop lying. That's what he's saying. If you were a thief before you got saved, stop stealing, okay? If you had an anger problem, okay, before you got saved, live in peace with all men, if you lived in promiscuity and immorality, you need to flee fornication now and live a clean moral life. I mean, that's what he's saying there, okay? If you, if you had a drinking and addiction problem, you need, to get off the, you need to get off the bottle and get off this addiction thing and learn how to walk in the Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit there. This is what, that's all he's saying there, okay? He's saying, to them who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, you and I don't do the sanctifying. He does the sanctifying. It's his power that controls us. It's his power. And you have to read and understand Romans chapter 6 to have an appreciation of that because Romans gets us to the place of salvation, then to sanctification, and later on to glorification as we read about that in chapters 8, 8 through 12 there, okay? So we, we look at that the situation here, and Paul is helping them understand what they are in Jesus Christ. Now, would you notice this tonight? Please, please circle this. In fact, circle the word saints. Everywhere you find this word, it's always plural in the New Testament, it's never saint singular, it's always saints plural, okay? And the word saints identifies who we are in Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at the etymology of the word. When Paul used this word, this is just telling you the wisdom of God and the greatness of God. God inspiring Paul to use choice words in writing our blessed New Testament, and it is blessed, amen? The word saints or hagios was a common cultural term back in the day. It was a cultural term that everybody associated with the temple of Aphrodite because as you entered into Corinth, you couldn't help but see the Acropolis way in the background and going up about 1,800 feet above sea level, there would be the temple of Aphrodite. Now the temple of Aphrodite had priests that were set apart or hagiost, set apart or hagiost to the service of Aphrodite. There were prostitutes that were set apart 
for the service of Aphrodite. They were hagios. They were called saints. If you, they, they, we use the word saint, but they were called hagios in the, in the term. They were set apart for sinful behavior. Those, those, pro, those prostitutes, they were called priestesses. They were none of that. They came down the hill at nighttime and plied, plied their trade, a thousand of them there, and things ran wild. So the term, the cultural term that was used in that day was referred to people that were set apart to the worship of a pagan god or not, not to a pagan god, perhaps to a pagan service or whatever it might have been. God in his wonderful wisdom took the word hagios and said, told Paul, he said, Paul, I want you to use a word using the Greek language and the cultural term and we're going to give it a better meaning. Aren't you glad God takes bad things and makes it good, amen? God takes old things and makes them new, amen? And God, God took, took that concept, that word, and he basically, he didn't sanctify it, he glorified it. He took that word and says, okay, we're going to take that word and we're going to give it a biblical meaning. We're going to give it a Christianized meaning. We're going to give it a holy meaning and we're going to take the word Hagios to define what the people of God are. Do you understand where I'm going tonight? He's saying here, when you get saved, you're saved out of sin, and you're saved out of sinful behavior, and you're set apart unto the God of all glory, and you're set apart to a God who's almighty, and you're set apart to a God who's holy and just and righteous, and being set apart to him, as we look full in his wonderful face, we're to be just like the God we're set apart to. Hey, listen, those prostitutes and those priests, they were set apart to those to licentious and promiscuous behavior, and as they looked that goddess, that many, that grotesque figure, that, that immoral figure of Aphrodite, they looked at that and they lusted and craved for that kind of a lifestyle. This they looked at that, they couldn't wait to leave that old temple and get down into the mainstream there of Corinth and ply their trade at night. But with you and I, we go to the temple of the living God and we see our God high and lifted up, the Lord of hosts, the Lord who fills all the earth with his glory. Listen, instead of seeing something grotesque, we see something mighty. Instead of seeing something grotesque, we see someone who's holy. We see somebody we want to be just like who we see amen. amen that's what we are we're saints of God we don't have to wait for some hierarchy to sit down after you've been dead and your bones and your your flesh has corrupted for 500 years and this hierarchy which is not even of God they get together and say well we guess Alan Fong is we're going to dedicate call him a saint because he did such and such thing there we don't need that God said the moment you get saved you're a saint of God amen. and that's good stuff amen Here's what Paul said about that, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9-11. Turn to it. Now I'm just laying the groundwork. We're going to get to point number two here. He said, know ye not, and I want you to listen to this tonight, because invariably, if you're, if you're an earnest, sincere, biblical soul winner, these are the kind of people you should be running into. Know ye not, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Why? Because false teachers are saying, well, you can be homosexual and still accept Jesus and go to heaven. No, you cannot. No, you cannot. I said, no, you cannot. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor, nor, nor effeminate, nor abusers themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkard. Now, he's not saying they can't get saved. He's just saying, if they get saved, they got to come out of that. Amen. they got to repent and come out of it. You better say amen to that, okay? Amen. Nor revilers, nor drunkards, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. It's not possible. 
Except a man be born again, he cannot enter to the kingdom of God. But look what Paul said. And such were some of you. Now, before you look down at somebody else, such were some of you too. But you're watched, praise God. You are sanctified. Bless the Lord. Amen. You are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Now, here's all he's telling them. The station of the church, its position, its people. We're called out people. Hey, if you haven't figured this out, we're not to be living like the world. We're not to be living like we used to live. Some of you need to change your friendships. Get rid of your friendships. They're not your friends. I keep telling people that all the time. They're not your friends. They'll turn on you. You have a bad day, they're going to turn on you. They don't want you. They just want what you can give them. They don't, they don't, they, and you think, well, I'm going to be like them so I can win them. You, what, what, if you become like them, you're just going to be like them. You're not going to win them. They're going to win you. Corinth was a church in the world, but now Corinth had become a place where the world was in the church. And Paul's reminding them, if you can remember, remember this now as we go through our study, he's laying the groundwork in verse 2. He's reminding them what they got saved out of. He's reminding them what kind of society they lived in. He's reminding them what God is doing in their life. And you need to remember tonight, we get so used to the Bay Area. This is a wicked culture we live in. And what God saved you out of was to be a light that shines in darkness in this darkened world. But notice the purpose of the church. Sanctified refers to being set apart for the purpose of holiness to a sovereign God. But the word sanctified also emphasizes the purpose of the church. You're set apart to serve. Listen, pagans have no trouble understanding what I worship I'm supposed to serve. Why is it God's people have a problem who I worship I'm supposed to serve? Come on. They have no problem with that. Pagans have no problem how they give and what they serve. Christians somehow have a problem. It's an impediment. There's a roadblock there. The mission and purpose of a church is to win sinners to Christ, baptize them, make disciples, develop faithful spiritual leaders, start more churches, and see this process repeated here and many other locations. The reason why we need to be spiritually mature the reason why we want to fine-tune our soul winning, the reason why we have to be straight in our preaching, straight in our living, is listen, we, we've got to, listen, the DNA is here is the DNA we put in another church. You cannot be a good discipler if your DNA is damaged. You've got to have right DNA. God wants us to have right DNA. So look what he's saying here, okay? God's will is that every member is a fervent serving member of the church. That's what he's saying here in verse 2. In fact, that's what he's telling them about their gifts. God's will is that every member is a fervent so-winning member of the church. And so Philippians 2.15, he says that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Hey, that, that's what every member is supposed to be. I like what Spurgeon said. He said this, the Bible is not the light of the world. It is the light of the church. That's a good thought. But the world does not read the Bible. The world reads Christians. You are the light of the world. That's a great thought. He said this also, nobody can do as much damage to the church of God as the man who is within its walls, but not within its life. That's a powerful thought. And so tonight, number one, we see the station of the church quickly, which you notice the status of the church. Paul 
said to them in verse 4, I thank my God always on your behalf. I thank my God always on your behalf. Are you thankful for Heritage Baptist Church? Always on his behalf. Are you thankful for your church? I'm not talking about your little clique that you find your comfort and your confidence. I'm talking about the church. Sunday school is not the church. It's part of the church. Your little clique is not is part of the church. It's not the church. Are you thankful for the church? Are you thankful for the people of the church? Watch this. Paul got the report from Sosthenes, the house of Chloe, and perhaps a few others. When you read verse 10, 11, he starts to drop the bomb there. May you read verse 10. Look what he says there. I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak all the same thing. They did it one time. That you speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same, judge, and same judgment. For it's been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. But now, now he's starting. He just, pulled, he just opened up the wound. But before he gets there, would you notice in verse 4, getting to that point, he's brokenhearted. He's bothered. He's hurting, and he rightly should be, because there is sin in the church and dysfunction in the church. But Paul, unlike us, was not letting that jade and ruin and corrupt or change his viewpoint of the church. He still thanked God for the church. Now, can I tell you something tonight? You, if you stay in church long enough, something's going to disappoint you. You stay in church long enough, something's going to hurt you. You stay in church long enough, you're going to find something wrong. You get close enough to the mirror, you find something wrong with your face. You get close enough to the church, you're going to find something wrong with the church. Don't leave the church because of that. Realize it's like the stock market. You've got to ride the roller coaster. Realize you're going to have your ups and your downs, but you've got to stay at the thing. Amen? Amen? And he said, I thank my God always for that. He was discouraged by what, he, what he's going to say here, but he, was, but he said, you know what, I'm thankful for it always. Now, what was he thankful for, okay? Before he addressed the problems in the church, as we'll see in these next few verses, he addresses the prosperity in the church. Before he addresses the wickedness in the church, he addresses the wealth in the church. Before he addresses the wrongdoing in the church, he addresses the righteousness that's in the church. Listen, there's something good about the church. There's something good about the people. Listen, I know enough about everybody. I could, I could get discouraged and go hang myself somewhere because I'm thinking, what a wicked group of people. Hey, thank God we're all saved and under the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. So Paul said, I thank my God always on your behalf for the, notice this, for the grace of God. Now, that's, now if, you, if you can hang on this, you'll understand First and Second Corinthians. It won't, it won't be a bothersome thing to you. He says, by, for the grace of God, which is given you by Jesus Christ. Now, this grace, this grace, that in everything you are enriched by him. The statement I want to make tonight is you are rich and wealthy in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, you are so rich and wealthy, he says, so that you come behind in no gift. Do not say, they've got more than me. No, you are enriched by him. 
Do not say, well, I, I, I don't have it as good as them. I don't live in their neighborhood. That neighborhood has nothing to do with it. You were enriched by him. You said, well, I didn't go to Bible college. Bible college has nothing to do with it. You were enriched by him. Uh, you said, well, but, but I haven't been around for 40 years. Longevity has nothing to do with it. You've been enriched by him. Listen, if you just got recently saved, you're enriched by Jesus Christ. You have the riches of his grace in your life right now. So what does that mean tonight? Well, let's look at what, what is the wealth of the grace of God? What is the wealth of the grace of God he's given us? Write these down very quickly. Notice first of all in verse 8. He said in verse 8, Who all, shall also confirm you unto the end. Now the word confirm means to make sure, to establish. That's a good word in these first few verses. It's used twice. He's speaking here that the wealth of his grace has given us eternal guarantee. Everlasting guarantee. Verse 8, if you look at this first part of the verse, who shall also confirm you to the end, is basically another verse that gives us a strong assurance of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, we've taken time over the last several, several weeks to other studies through second, first, second Thessalonians. I'm not going to do it tonight, but I just want to tell you tonight, we know the grace of God saves us, but thank God the grace of God is what secures us. Amen. That's what he's saying here, okay? He says, that for the grace of God, which is given you by Christ Jesus, that everything also includes in verse 8, we are confirmed unto the end. A true confirmation is the fact that you are made sure by the grace of God. You can't lose your salvation. And one of the great verses I love is 1 Peter chapter 1. You look it up later, verses 3 to 5, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, who talks about who has begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to this. To an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the end. That's an eternal guarantee. Now listen tonight. You may be a new Christian. You may be an established Christian. If you're struggling with your assurance of salvation, the Bible says, he by his grace shall confirm you to the end. Hey, once you're saved, you're always saved. You can't lose it. Amen. Secondly, secondly, the wealth of his grace he's given us is in the endowment of gifts. Now, churches like to get up and talk about endowment programs, and colleges like to talk about endowment programs, and we need to have those. I pray the day will come as we get a little bit more generation in our churches while Jesus tarries. I hope that we can have endowment programs for the, for the future needs of our church there and expansion, things like that. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about you endowing the church. We're talking about what God has endowed the church with. He's endowed us with gifts. If you notice verse 5, he says that in everything, this everything are the gifts of God, the spiritual gifts of God, which he'll spend time in chapters 12, 13, and 14 on. He says that in everything you are enriched by him. Now, interestingly, as we look at the 18 to 20, 22 gifts, spiritual gifts that God has given us, I want you to notice Paul points out two of them in verse, verse 5. He says that everything you're enriched by him. So he's telling them, listen, the gift of faith, the gift of administration, the gift of leadership, the gift of mercy. You know, sometimes we jokingly say in our circles, we say, I don't have a strong gift of mercy. Not according to this verse. Not according to that verse. Gift of hospitality. Okay, I mean, all these spiritual gifts we'll talk about later on, okay? He's talking about gifts God gave you at salvation. He points out two of them which we need to focus and think about for a little bit tonight. He said they were enriched in all utterance and in all knowledge. Number one, the word utterance is referring to 
all speaking ability. Now, in their case, he has to address the issue of dealing with tongues. We'll get to that. Just be here for that. Don't miss the series, amen? But this church, because of its education, because of its knowledge, because of its whatever, people in that church were strong in their articulation skills. They were good communicators. They were able to speak. Now you say, what's that got to do with Well, as we, we read through this a little bit, they were, they were very impressed with preachers because there was division. There was the camp of Paul and the camp of Apollos, the camp of Cephas, and even they had the camp of Christ. And so he said that you are, they were blessed in their speaking abilities. They're preaching, they're witnessing, they're teaching, their conversational skills. It was blessed. Now let me make a statement to you tonight. I believe in the same way as I look at the parallel. Heritage Baptist Church is blessed in all utterance too. We are. Okay, now listen to my statement I'm going to make. Churches that God blesses and gifts in all utterance are churches who have greater opportunities. Did you hear what I said? If we've been blessed, and we have, in all utterances, we've been given greater opportunities. If you have a teaching ability, you better use that gift and use it right. You have a preaching ability, you've got the call of preaching, you better use it. If you have a speaking ability, you better witness. Those opportunities are there. Okay? He says, you've been enriched by him in all utterance. Then he talks about knowledge. Now, knowledge, very simply, is what you know. It's something you can talk about. This church was rich in their utterance because they had knowledge. Now, now listen, Paul spent 18 intensive months. I mean, I wish he was alive today so I could, I could sit down with Paul with a pad and paper and query him and ask him about his discipleship ministry because, man, he got it done. I mean, he got it done. He was saying, you know. He grounded this church's spiritual knowledge. Now listen to the thought I'm going to give you. The more knowledge you have, the more confidence you have. The more, more knowledge you have, the better you can speak. But the more knowledge you have, the more responsibility you have. He said, God has enriched you in all utterance and knowledge. Now he's laying the groundwork because those are the two very things as he gets into this epistle, especially the first few chapters, that he has to, he has to go, I mean, he has to tear right into them and explain to them they have misused their gifts, and in some cases they've abused their gifts, and in some cases they're underusing their gifts. Now the same thing applies to us as a church. There are some of us who underuse our gifts. There's some of us who misuse our gifts, and some of us, perhaps, God forbid, in this church, but it could be, some of us have been abusing our gifts. And that's what Paul's talking about here. You've been enriched by him in all these gifts here. And so, church, I'm just saying to you tonight, God's just basically saying, we're blessed. Hey, we're blessed. Say amen. 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 We're blessed. And we better thank God we're blessed. Amen. amen. We better thank God for his blessing. We better think about what he's saying here in chapter 1. We are blessed. We are rich. We are wealthy in him. We, have, we, don't have the, we don't have the Joel Austin prosperity. We have a biblical prosperity. We are rich by him. There's nothing that you're lacking there. Amen. Notice something else here. Why did he gift this church? Why, why was the grace of God given to them to enrich them? Well, number one, for eternal guarantees. Number two, for the endowment of gifts, would you write this down? Look at, note it, look at if you would, verse 6. Would you write this down? Number three, for an evangelistic gain. 
for an evangelistic game. Listen to what he says here. He says in verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ, and there's that word again, was confirmed or made sure in you. Now the word testimony is our word martyrio. What he's basically saying, because I don't have time, God has enabled us with knowledge and articulation to be witnesses and soul winners for the purpose of an evangelist again. What I mean by that is God has gifted us and enabled us and grounded us and stirs us so that souls can be saved. That's the bottom line. God wants souls to be saved. Amen. God wants his church filled with sinners who hear the gospel and get saved. The testimony of Christ, he said, was confirmed in you. You've proved it. He said, I was with you for 18 months. You've proved it. You demonstrated it. He said, listen, I saw it at work in your life. He said, the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Now, I'm going to ask you a question tonight. Is the testimony of Christ confirmed in you? What are you doing with it? Is there an evangelist again? Is there so many gain? Are we in the positive or in the negative? And we need to be in the positive. People move, people die, people get discouraged, people drop out. We need to have an evangelist again. He said, I gave you these gifts for the purpose of an evangelist again. Listen, you've heard this said many, many times. So winning is caught more than is taught. During the time when Oliver Cromwell was alive, there were wars going on and they were using a lot of metal for, for, uh, for monetary, uh, monetary purposes. And they had a shortage of coins, silver coins specifically. He put a commission of men to go all throughout England to find silver coins wherever they could. And they went everywhere. And they said, they said sir, we came back. We have a shortage. The only place we could find where, there's some, where we can find some, some silver, we've went to, to some of the cathedrals here. And we see these, these figures, these silver figures of saints that are there, quote, quote unquote, saints, okay? And Oliver Cromwell, without Skippy Beach, says, well, I'll tell you what to do. Go melt down the saints and put them back in circulation. And I think tonight that's what God needs us to do. He needs to melt us down and get us into circulation. Amen? Amen? He needs to put us to work. He needs to get us out there. He needs to get a burden for souls. Hey, make a determination. Saturday is not sleeping in time. Saturday is soul winning time. Amen. Saturday is not bedtime. Saturday is Bible time. Saturday is not take it easy time. Saturday is evangelistic time. I mean, just get a conviction of your heart and say, well, pastor, then I don't have a day off. Listen, if you just give one hour to Jesus on Saturday morning, just help with one hour, it'll, it'll make your day go longer. I don't know how to describe it to you, but it just makes your day go better, makes your day go longer, amen? It just does. It just does. But then notice something else. It's for, it's, it's for, an, it's for an eternal guarantee, this enrichment, and it's, it's for the endowment of gifts and for an evangelist again. But you notice verse 8. It's for our eventual graduation or eventual goal. He said, who shall also confirm you to the end that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does he mean by that? Okay, well, watch this. Acts chapter 18. Sosthenes is taken. He's beaten up. And he's brought to the judgment seat. The Bema seat. Acts chapter 19, Paul has a visit with the judgment seat. Between Acts 22 and 26, Paul has several visits to a judgment seat. At each one of those times, 
Sosthenes is one time, Paul multiple times. They were brought before a presiding individual who sat on top of the judge's seat and they listened to the accusations laid against Paul. But in each of those accusations, he was blameless. He wasn't at fault. He was accused, but he wasn't at fault. And here's what our Lord is saying here to the Apostle Paul. That at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, at the day of the rapture, that will usher in for every believer in heaven. It will usher in for us the judgment seat of Christ, which we'll spend a little more time on. He says, it doesn't matter what they say of you. What really matters is that at the judgment seat, you're blameless. You're not going to be. You're not going to be found guilty of those things. You're blameless in those things. Okay. I mean, people are going to accuse you for everything. The key matter here is you've got to be blameless before God. And he says, "All I care about," because he's concerned about their sanctification. Remember that he's concerned about their sanctification. He's concerned how they they will present themselves before the Lord in eternity. He says, "I just am concerned that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ." And you'll notice the gifts of grace. He's just reminding them, "You are enriched by the grace of God in all things." He's just saying here, "Listen, you're enriching up." There's enough grace. He gives you enough grace so that you can stand. He gives you enough grace so that you can make it. He gives you enough grace so that you can be more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ here. And so number one tonight, we see the station of the church. Number two, we see the status of the church. And very quickly as we close tonight, would you notice the stimulus of the church? Now Paul is laying the groundwork because after verse 9, it doesn't get pretty. It's, it, it, he's, just, he's just rock hard down on them right there, okay, in a loving way. The church had many difficulties. And in verse 9, he reminds them and reminds you and me of an unchangeable fact. That should be a stimulus to live for God. That should be a stimulus not to get discouraged. Should be a stimulus not to go back to sin. It should be a stimulus when you go through temptations. You see, because every Christian here tonight will get discouraged and lose motivation. You'll get disinterested. That means we get lukewarm. You'll get disinterested and lose motivation. You'll get distracted because of work or other things and lose motivation. You'll be disappointed and lose motivation. And in some cases, we see the church in Corinth, you might even fall into defilement, God forbid. You might fall into defilement and sin, and you're going to lose motivation. So what is that unchangeable fact? There it is in verse 9. God is faithful. Amen. God is faithful. Say that with me tonight. God is faithful. Say it again. God is faithful. God is faithful. He's not going to walk out on you. He's not going to shut the door on you. Yeah, they were messed up church, and we like to talk about their messed up church, but God was faithful. God is there. I don't care how bad your situation may be. I don't care what people think about you. God is still faithful. He hasn't changed. He's still faithful. I mean, we have a faithful God. I want you to think of some things with me tonight about God being faithful when we're done this evening because I've said so much about it in previous messages. But number one, number one, would you notice Psalms 89, verses 23 and 24? He's faithful to us when we're in adversity. God said, and I will beat down his foes before his, play, before his face and plague them that hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with them, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. He's talking about David. He's faithful to us when, we're in, when we have adversity. 
Notice he's faithful to us when we're attacked. He's talking about temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. I love that word escape. He says, listen, I know how much you can take. He says, I'm faithful. I won't make you experience more than you can take. I know what you can take. You need to thank God for it and just say, God, just help me get through it. I'm going to rest on your faithfulness. Hey, notice something else. He's faithful to us when he chastens us. Think about that. Psalms 119, verse 75. The psalmist said, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right and that thou in faithfulness has afflicted me. Hey, thank God tonight. If you're going through chastening, thank God for it tonight. In faithfulness. You know why? God brought that chastening at the right time. He brought that thorn in the flesh, that problem, at the right time. Think about what he's averting by bringing that chasing into your life. Think of what he's purging by bringing that into your life there. Notice, he's faithful in answering our prayers. Praise God. Psalms 143, verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. My, in my, thy faithfulness, answer me, and in thy rights. Hey, he knew that God would answer him, but he's just saying, God, in thy faithfulness, answer me. Hey, listen, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all of our sins. God is faithful. To a church who's enriched by him, we can rejoice. God is faithful. He waits for us. He puts delays in our life that we need. He closes doors we're not supposed to go into. And he opens doors that we're supposed to go into. He's faithful. He puts people in our life that he can trust us with. And he doesn't put people in our life that he can't trust us with. I mean, he's faithful. He's faithful when we're beat, beaten down. He's there with us. He's just like, like, uh, like I was just telling somebody the other day. It's just like old Hagar. Hagar got thrown out the house and she got blamed for Abraham and Sarai's bad decision making. And she got thrown out and she was just out there and she thought all things were all bad. And God led her to the place of a well. And there at the well, she found God and she named that place El Roi, thou God seest me. She saw God was faithful. Elijah was there in the mountain. He tried to hide himself in a cave. He heard the still small voice of God. He learned God is faithful. Daniel was in the lion's den. He learned God is faithful. Hey, listen, Peter denied the Lord, but he found he was faithful. Paul was on a ship that was being battered about in the Mediterranean Sea. Two weeks, there was no sun. All they, they didn't see the stars. They didn't see the moon. Nothing. It was just all darkness. But God was still faithful. And I'm going to tell you tonight, I don't care where you're at in life. You're fa he's fa and by the way, he's faithful to us until we breathe our last breath in this life. And he's still faithful when you go home to be with him in heaven. Amen. It doesn't change. You're enriched by him. You're enriched by him. You might be struggling tonight about your membership in the church. Remember, you're one of his saints. You might be struggling tonight about how much you've been gifted for the church. You're enriched in everything. It's not the question we have to ask tonight. What are you doing with what God has gifted you with? You might be struggling tonight about your motivation. God is faithful. John Wendell and his sisters were people that inherited a substantial amount of money from their parents. But John Wendell and his sisters, he decided that, you know what? We're not going to share this wealth with anybody. He convinced his five sisters never to marry. He convinced them not to buy any clothes. He convinced them to do what the best what they could. They were the most miserly, cheapskate people you ever met. He died. Four of the sisters died. When the last remaining sister died, then they found her. They looked at her will. They looked at all their possessions. She had accumulated. They had over $100 million in assets that they all had hoarded themselves. They lived in one of the worst parts of town. The worst part, one of the worst things they found among many things, that she only had one dress. It was the same dress that she'd made 25 years before. It was the same dress she wore over and over again. Here are people that were rich, and all they did was waste their opportunities. I think there's something to be said tonight about a people of God who have been enriched by him, who have been called out in 
is sanctified to be saints of God who are, who are to do all these things for God and we're wasting our opportunities. I say to you tonight, you are enriched by him. You are enriched by You come behind in no gift. Are you using your gifts for God? Do you know what your gifts are? Are you using it to maximum opportunity? Is God being honored by those gifts or is he being dishonored by those gifts? Tonight, we must come face to face with the fact we're enriched by him. What are we doing with those gifts as local church members, as saints of the living God? I say tonight, because God is faithful, we can go much farther than where we've gone. You're rich by him. You're a saint of God. Think about that name. You're set apart for the worship and service of the living God. He's blessed you in all utterance, in all knowledge. What are you doing? 